All right, we'll begin today. Um, I'd like to welcome some new questions that are, have been submitted by the MBT forum users. Um, Tom's forum at www.mybigtoe.com or my-big-toe.com has a place where you can sign up for the forum. Uh, just to the right, when you first go to the website, it says View Forum, and then there's a place to click on to, to register. You can ask questions there at the forum. There are many people there on the forum very qualified to answer them, or you can also submit them to be asked here and, and answered online. I do want to point out, too, that the listeners should, should know that uh, Tom's My Big Toe books are available on his website, on Amazon, and also for no charge on Google Books. Um, just a note also, when we are asking questions here, um, we sometimes refer to things uh, as to extracting information from the database. Tom's model represents the identity reality equals information, so therefore everything is considered as information, and this is why we speak of the databases. Um, today, there are going to be various questions, uh, some about Tom and his non-physical reality experiences. Also, how does the process of shifting data, shifting data streams, how does the process of shifting data streams work? Focusing intent, out-of-body experiences, the process of separation of our free will awareness units, that's us here, after death. Uh, also questions on transplants and cell memory, on non-physical traits of identical twins separated at birth, on life events and challenges, and also some questions on animals. So we welcome you today to the MBT Forum. And the first question comes from one of the forum users from Tom's forum. Um, I have a question that concerns the training you received in NPMR, which is non-physical matter reality. Are you able to tell us what it was specifically that you were being trained for? For instance, do you feel that your training and experimentation in non-physical reality was to be primarily directed towards writing your MBT trilogy and to teach and spread the information over the internet? hoping as well to help change the paradigm of scientific thinking on consciousness? Or are you perhaps currently using your past training much more in non-physical reality than in physical reality? For instance, is there some current ongoing agenda in non-physical reality where your experience, knowledge, and teaching is perhaps more desperately needed and being utilized? This is from Michael. Okay, it was uh, definitely much more the, of the second that is, it wasn't uh, preparation for writing MBT. Um, that really wasn't wasn't part of it. Uh, it was being able to interact well in the non-physical. In other words, we have habits here in the in, in the physical reality, and we tend to approach problems and approach things the same way we approach them here in you know, in the, in the physical virtual reality. And we have to unlearn those, um, I don't know what to call them, kind of, kind of gut level responses about how you deal with things. And instead, you have to learn to deal with things with your, with your mind, with your intent. So as things change and, and events happen and you want to interact with those events, Rather than wanting to reach out your hand and grab something, you need to want to reach out with your intent and intend something. And it's a different way of being when you're interacting in the non-physical. It's uh, all intent-based and not physical-based, and it just takes some time to be able to build up. Um, you know, maybe instincts isn't the quite word, the right word, but you maybe get my meaning there. To build up. Uh, um, approaches and reactions and ways of interacting that become that become kind of, um, you don't have to think about it. It just happens. In other words, you, you work with it enough that it becomes second nature. It's not a matter of saying, oh, I'm in the non-physical, so I need to do this. You see, that would be an intellectual process, but rather you just 
do this or do that. You function very uh, spontaneously in that realm because you've just spent a lot of time there. And most of my training was toward that end, to make me very functional in the non-physical. And the reason for that is that I had functions to perform in that non-physical reality. That's also why I was particularly shown around a lot, where I was you know, sent or taken various places just to see how those places work, just to give me an idea of what the non-physical reality contained, what was there and what could you do there. And, you know, like, you know, is it larger than a bread box kind of thing? You know, you have to have experience to know, you know, how big is it? You know, what's involved? How many uh, other places are there, you know, like our physical matter reality? And and just lots and lots of experiences uh, becoming, uh, you know, getting a job at the transition reality frame where you just spent some time dealing with people and their transitions from the physical to the non-physical, being a part of that process. So that was what I call my training. It uh, was very much uh, like an apprenticeship in the sense that you have to do things for a while. You learn by doing. You learn by by being a part of the of the process. It's not intellectual learning in the sense that you sit down and somebody instructs you about the way the transition process works. It's that you get put in the transition process as a as a uh, as a helper, as a worker, and then you you experience how it works because you're a part of that a part of that process. And not only do you experience it in, in where you work, but you follow individuals through. Someone first comes into that process, then you're with them, and you stay with them until they exit that process. So it, it was that sort of thing as training. It was just a being shown around, being um, exposed to a lot of things, uh, being an apprentice, getting hands-on um, experience in a lot of different areas, different reality systems, uh, different things that could happen. So that was how I you know, would characterize my training. It was it was more of a training to be useful and functional and understand the big picture and how to deal in that reality and had very little to do with writing my big toe. The writing my big toe was mostly, you know, my Tom Campbell's project. Um, once I understood enough about how reality worked, now, you can say all that training helped me understand how reality works. So now you can say it's not just Tom Campbell's project, but you know Tom Campbell had to do the writing because it was to be a physical book and a physical reality. So it all, in that sense, the two are combined, but it wasn't about writing or, or uh, that I should write a book or anything else. That just uh, came to me. And as I wrote the book, I had to figure out the details as I went. So I wasn't you know, I, I couldn't have sat down on, on uh, you know, in one week and dictated the whole book. I didn't have it like that. I had lots and lots of pieces. I had all the, all the facts I needed and all the pieces and all the experience I needed. But to put those in some kind of a rational English prose so that it made sense to the reader, that was the big challenge, which means I had to be very specific in the way I translated my knowledge into English, into words that then could be, you know, written down. That was that's the hard part. You know, often when you have experience in the non-physical, you come back and you feel like you know exactly what went on. But if you had to write about it to somebody else, it would look kind of sketchy. You know, it wouldn't. Uh, it, you wouldn't be too coherent in writing it down to show it to someone else because a lot of that knowing is not at the intellectual level. And if it's not at the intellectual level, then it's hard to write down. It's hard to put into language until you get it up into the intellectual level. So I had to take all of this experience and information that I had and boil it up into the intellectual level to where I could write it down in good sentences and could do such that other people could read it and actually you know, get something out of it rather than kind of just go over their head because... I'm talking about things that are outside most people's experience. And when you try to explain something that's outside somebody's experience, that's a real hard thing to do because they don't have any way to interpret it. So you have to be um, 
very uh, precise the way you say it, and generally you have to say it from four or five different directions just so they kind of take the sum of all those directions and then get it better than if you just gave it to them from, from one vantage point. One vantage point, they wouldn't get it as well as if you give it to them from many vantage points. So that's why uh, there's, there's some um, you know, redundancy in my books. They're, it's there on purpose because people who have never thought about these things before need to see it from multiple perspectives before they can begin to grasp what it is I'm, I'm talking about. So that was the that was the big challenge in the in the writing, and I guess all of it was a summary uh, or a summation of the things that I'd learned, but that it wasn't as direct as as the first part of your question would would uh, you know suppose. It's not like I was saying, well, you're gonna have to write this book now, and you know, here's what we do. Here's the first three chapters, and it, nothing like that was laid out. Writing the book was entirely up to me to put it together and make it whatever it was and somehow figure out how to put it in language so that other people could understand. Um, I had other things to do. Um, uh, and, and all of the other things I had to do in the non-physical, some of them were more important than others. Some of them were just learning exercises, but all of them contributed to my understanding of how things worked. So you could look at them as both uh, lessons that I was in school and being trained. You could also look at them as just experiences, um, you know, things that happened, and you learn from them. And exactly how much of it was, was scripted, in other words, that there was somebody behind uh, the scenes um, creating the things that I experienced so that I would experience them, or whether it just was... Like anybody else who's an explorer, you know, you bump into this thing and then you, you go beyond it and you bump into something else. So some of it may have been just um, you know, serendipitous. Uh, some of it may have been programmed. You know, it's really hard to tell when you're the subject, uh, you don't know. You know, when you're the rat in the maze, you're not sure exactly whether that maze was just there and you happen to stumble into it or that maze was just put down in front of you so that you could experience it. It's, that's a very difficult thing to tell. So I don't know. They were uh, experiences. In the early part, it was obvious that there was training because you would do something, and if you didn't do it well, you'd do it again. And if you didn't do it well, you'd do it again, and you keep working at it until you got it right, which is obvious training. You know, that's that was clear that you were, that I was being put through uh, learning lessons, and uh, I, that was very clearly training. Uh, much of the rest of it was just experience. I feel that a lot of it was purposefully given to me, you know, experiences that I, were, that I was uh, led to, if you will, or given so that I would have a better understanding of how things worked and be able to write the books. But the books were not the, necessarily the end point, as it is my understanding was more of the end point, and my ability to use my, my consciousness uh, very well and very easily in that in that realm. Right. The next question, along the same theme of your experiences in the non-physical, Tom, comes from one of the MBT forum users. In the partial autobiography of Book One, Tom talks about a moment where he was shut out from visiting NPMR as a youth. He asks someone to take a look to see if he will ever be able to return. At which point, the person looks realizes with agitation that he saw something he was not supposed to see and runs off without another word. I've been dying with curiosity to know if Tom ever found out what it was the person saw and if you could share it with us. <laughs> well, you know, like, like most of uh, life, when you look back to uh, try to uh, understand past events, there's, there's more than one way to look at them. There did... Um, there was politics involved, it seemed, with my training. The training wasn't just random, like, oh, let's randomly pick out somebody and train them to do something, you know, and see if that works. It wasn't that. There was more, more meaning, more intent, more purpose behind it than that. And in the non-physical, uh, it's, it's not when you get to be, well, let me just put it another way. Some people have the idea that when they're here in physical bodies, 
that they're at the lowest stratum of, of consciousness evolution, that this physical world is, is kind of the basement and everything goes up from there. And they have the idea that when they die and become aware beyond this physical reality, they will suddenly be enlightened and know everything. You know, they will become uh, pure and, and uh, uh, whatever. And that's the that's kind of the end point. And it's not like that. There are many of the, well, most of the individuals of the beings that you'll run into that exist in what we call non-physical. In other words, they're not part of our particular virtual reality. They're in other virtual realities. Most of these people are not enlightened, all wise, know what's going on, know how the system works. They're very much just like we are in this physical reality. They're kind of stumbling around, doing the best they can with what they've got, and don't have a real big picture. Most of them, uh, just like most of us here, aren't even looking for a big picture. You know, they're just keeping on, keeping on, because that's what they do. And uh, even thinking about a big picture is not in, you know, it's not something that they that they're interested in. Just like most of the people here, you know, they're just stumbling through life and. Worrying about a big picture is not really, uh, you know, on their mind. So it's not that different in the in the non-physical. Remember, our our physical reality is just a, a small subset of virtual reality, and and uh, other virtual realities are similar in that in that way. Okay, so. Uh, there was some politics involved in my training, my being, um, what, selected for the training, you might say, and that wasn't just, uh, you know, a random event either. You know, this had been in the process through many lifetimes before that. Um, this training didn't just happen this time. It was part of an ongoing program that, uh, that I was part of, and I experienced it in, through different lifetimes. Working up to a, an under, you know, getting getting better, if you will, like a, an aging wine, you know, getting better, learning more, being more competent, you know, as I as I went along, and part of the reason was that there was a, there is in the non-physical politics, just like there is politics here. Whenever you have a lot of people who have who are fear-based, ego-based, and belief-based. You will have politics. You will have struggle. You will have, uh, you know, um, you know this this group opposes that group. You know, different ways of doing things, different opinions on what's the best way to proceed, et cetera, et cetera. So you have differences of opinions, and these often then merge into different groups, um, different factions. So all that goes on in the non-physical as well. In a, in a bigger picture. So my my uh, training, if you will, and my selection and bringing me along over lifetimes has all been, you know, part of this these bigger struggles. And as you know, when people, uh, when individuals kind of uh, split off into factions or opposing groups, Secrecy is a is a major part of that because you you're going to make your moves and you don't want the the other faction to know what moves you're making so that they don't counter them before you make them, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that is similar everywhere. There are individuals with low quality of consciousness. And as far as I can tell, there are individuals with low quality consciousness and individuals with high quality of consciousness in all the various virtual realities. You get a, a mixed uh, selection of, of uh how much evolution that the individual consciousness have gone through is, is usually mixed in virtual realities. It's not like there are very many where everyone is, is uh, you know, very low quality and everyone is very high quality. Now, there may be one or two of those, but they're the exception rather than the, rather than the rule. So I was, uh, the, the secret that uh, I didn't understand then basically had to do with, um, the, the politics of my training and who you know who knew and who didn't know and what it is they expected me to do and so on so that was the 
that was it. Now, do I know exactly what that was about? No, I still don't know exactly what it was about because I'm still in part of the process. You know, as you're in the process, you don't really necessarily see the whole process that you're in because you're in a subset of it. But have I gleaned parts of it and pieces of it and got a sense of it? Yes, and that's pretty much what I've told you. There are uh, there are a lot more details, but I don't go into details because there's no point telling people things that they don't really have any way whatsoever to to uh, evaluate. It just leaves people in a in a place where they have to believe it or not, and that's not a useful place. So I don't talk about my experience as much because leaving you in a spot where you either believe it or don't believe it is not profitable for either of us. It puts you in a place that's nothing you can do. There's no way you can go out and get information, you see, to find out for yourself to make it your truth. So there's no point in it. If it's not your truth, then it's not really all that important to you. It's just something that your ego would, you know, and other people's egos, you know, they could... The believers and the non-believers then could, you know, have a have a food fight over it or something. But that's really not productive. So I don't go into details about, you know, what it is I do and why maybe it should be in a secret and that sort of thing because it's not useful. But there is more um, that goes on in the non-physical than than uh, than most people think because most people have an idealized view of the non-physical as a place where angels flit around and, you know, everybody's happy and it's it's not uh, at all similar to here, but there are similarities. I mean, there's lots of dissimilarities too, but just having groups of, of uh, consciousnesses around, you're going to end up with struggle, disagreement, factions, politics, good guys and bad guys, depending on you know, where your perspective is. I guess if you expect your perspective is with A, then A are the good guys. And if your perspective is with B, then B are the good guys. But um, all of that happens in the non-physical as well as here because the non-physical is populated with individuals just like here. Tom, uh, carrying this question on a little bit, is everything a little more transparent in the non-physical? Because you mentioned divided factions. Um, how do you keep secrets in a in an in a reality where it's intent driven where there's not the same constraints that we have here well your intent you know for the same reason that you don't hear the thoughts of all 7 plus billion people that are in your virtual reality with you inside your head all the time. You know, why don't you hear that? All consciousness is netted, right? And if all consciousness is netted, why don't we get, you know, what, seven and a half or eight billion uh, conversations going on? Well, at least half of that, because half of them are asleep, right? But why don't we have, why don't we get all that uh, traffic in our head? We don't because we intend to not listen to that. We intend only to listen to the stuff we want to listen to. We focus on things, and that's the data we get. And what we don't focus on, we don't, we don't get that. We don't see it. We don't hear it. It doesn't enter us because it's not part of what uh, our intent is to hear. That's why when you go uh, looking for something and you think it's in a, a yellow manila envelope and really it's in a, you know, something else, it's in a brown box, you can look at what you're looking for 10 times and never see it because in your mind you're looking for certain data. Therefore, you don't see, you know, uh, you don't see that. Even if it's sitting right on your desk, right in front of you, and you've looked over it a bunch of times, it's not really what you're looking for. It's not what you're focused on. It's not what your intent is to find, and therefore you don't see it. It's invisible to you. It's the same thing. So we have our intent. We intend to see and hear and interact with those we intend to see and hear and interact, and the rest of them are kind of shut out because we have no intention for that. Well, that's the way it is in the non-physical. You, you do intend. It is a, you know, uh, a telepathic uh, connections, if you will, and you can mask that or shut it out or only send it to very specific people and to an extent, others can come in and maybe uh, override that if they are much uh, more capable than you are and you are very naive or whatever. So it depends on 
what kind of abilities you have and and the abilities that somebody else that may want to eavesdrop has, how strong is your intent, how strong is their intent, etc. But you can keep secrets in such a place. You just have to uh, know how to keep your intent uh, uh, focused and pure and not just have stuff, you know, bouncing around in your head and your intent jumping all over the place as long as you are uh, not noisy in the, in the sense that your your consciousness is not a noisy thing. It's, it's uh, very well, I hate to use the word controlled, but I guess that would be a good word to use. You know, it's, it's controlled in the sense that it doesn't do things on its own. It's not a random event creator. So it's not impossible to do that. You can keep privacy and things. You can have, uh, you know, team versus team, and uh, they don't necessarily know all of uh, each other's, uh, uh, you know, political secrets. It's just the nature of being conscious that there are such things. Are there any rules of interference for NPMR beings, as there are some rules for for us here as uh, physical matter reality beings, um, as far as interference goes from the non-physical, would there be any rules of interference for non-physical as well? Yes, there are some. There are not as many as there are for uh, for we who have bodies in this vir- this particular virtual reality, and that's because, in a way, we're considered. Um, we need to be protected. We're like children, you know, children at daycare. You put up certain constraints to protect the children at daycare because the children at daycare are not very capable of looking out for themselves. So you don't just, you know, when school's over, you just don't, you know, send them out on the street. You know, that's not acceptable. You know, you, they don't go out near a street unless an adult's with them holding their hand, you know, that kind of thing, because they don't really know enough about the physical world not to run out in traffic. Well, that's the way it is here. There are very few people who understand anything at all significant about the non-physical reality. And because of that, they, are, they would be vulnerable if there were no constraints on um, beings who, who don't exist here in a physical body but would like to interact with us on a non-physical level. Because we can't really protect ourselves or don't know what we're doing that can interact that way, then there are rules that say we can't be, um, you know, there are limits to how we might be interacted with. Let's put it that way. Now, when we talk about non, non-physical reality, all we're saying is realities other than our physical reality, Okay. NPMR is not just one big place. It's not just one grand um, uh, place. It's made up of many, many other virtual realities. If there is a reality in which you can experience, in which you can experience, then that is a virtual reality. So all realities that are experiential are virtual realities. The transition reality is a virtual reality. Uh, out-of-body reality is a virtual reality. You see, now these realities may overlap. Some, like a, like the out-of-body reality and the what uh, lucid dreaming reality, and so on. Most of the differences there have to do with the constraints of the of the consciousness, not with the reality itself. So there are many virtual realities, and within these virtual realities, if they have, if they're if the individuals in them are more childlike in the sense that we are in this virtual reality because here we have a, a reality with such a rule set that it's that it's very buttoned down you know we have uh, a very strong rule set here that determines what we what our senses get the information that we can deal with and we don't get other information except that so that leaves us vulnerable in a way because it's such a constricted reality. Other constricted realities have the same kind of, of uh, uh, rules that, that uh, you know, keep them safe as well. You get a virtual reality more like the out-of-body reality, well, that's not true. You see, you don't have the same kind of limitations on, on the beings there. There you have an ability to telepathically communicate, to, uh, you know, interact in ways you can interact here 
and therefore there are less constraints on what you can do and what can be done to you. You know, that's it's a it's a more wide open area because you are more capable there. Well, that's one reason why it's good for people who are very fearful to stay out of that particular experience because if you're fearful, then you're not going to interact well and you could end up, you know, with a with an interaction that uh, frightens you and then that fear could cause you trouble here. So I don't know if I, I kind of danced around that question. It's not um, – no, maybe that's maybe that's a decent uh, answer for it. But yes, there are some protections between and between other virtual reality systems. There's some protections all the time. There's some uh, there's some rules that say these different. You know, in my books, I talked about that there were different uh, organizations of consciousness, and and I talked about ours being uh, you know capital N division, right, and that there were others. Well, there's, there's rules that, that uh, eliminate a lot of traffic between those. It's not that traffic between those is impossible. It's just that it has, it's regulated. Okay? From one of those units to the other, you just don't have beings just streaming back and forth at will. It's regulated. And that's because they have certain, um, you might say, protocols, certain kind of things going on that uh, they don't want outside influences to mess with that uh, you know, with, with those experiments, with those people, you you can you have to limit variables. It's partly why our physical reality is such a good learning lab, because by being such a tight rule set, many variables are eliminated. So we get to interact within a limited set of variables called our senses. That shuts out a whole lot of other stuff and makes it more focused for what we do and the choices we make and the feedback we get from those choices. It's much more... Uh, something we can work with than if we had a lot more variables. So there are rules between various um, subsets, various uh, virtual realities, all of which we group into this one heading of non-physical matter reality, NPMR. So it's not just a big one big homogenous thing. It's lots of subsets and, and uh, other virtual realities in there. And yes, there are some rules between them. And that really depends on each virtual reality, what its function is, and uh, you know what its what its purpose is. Like the transition reality, that's the reality where after you uh, your body dies here, you go through a transition reality before you incarnate into another experience packet. In that transition reality, that is also a very protected reality. That's not one where beings can just come in and interact with you uh, just because they want to because that's a very special purpose reality and it needs to stay focused on what it's doing and its mission and it's not a place where a lot of outside influence would be helpful. Outside influence would not be so helpful there. Okay, so it's, it's constrained. So that's what I mean. It, there isn't just one big uh, say, well, here's the rules. You know, it, it depends on the various sub, subsets of reality. Well, thank you for that. Uh, that leads into another question um, that Oliver had on the separation of our free will awareness unit, that is ourselves here, this body, this physical body, the uh, separation after death. You often explain communication with deceased loved ones as an information exchange with a database which contains all their life experience but that the free will awareness unit that played that role is most likely already in a new life playing a different role. This model implies that a separation between the free will awareness unit and the role it played has to take place at some point after death. Can you speak a bit more in detail about this separation process? Is a free will awareness unit aware that it is detaching from a role it played? Can a free will awareness unit exist without any role attached to it. For example, not anymore in the old life, yet not in a new one. How much time do we have to contact the real deceased person before its free will awareness unit separates and we can only talk to a lifeless copy or model of the person? Okay, a little description of how the process works. Uh, when the body dies at the 
time the body dies, then the free will awareness unit is no longer attached to that body because it's a not a functioning body anymore. It's that virtual body is no longer animated in this virtual reality. So there is no point in a free will awareness unit being attached to a dead body. So that's when it, you know, separates, if you will. Now, you know, separates is is not quite the right word. It's the word we use, but it's it's not quite right. When you're playing your elf and then you decide to play your barbarian, do you separate from the elf and then merge with the barbarian? Eh, not exactly, right? I mean, those words might work as metaphors, but it's not exactly the way that happens. So this is, you know, when we say separate, realize that separate doesn't mean that the part that it comes apart. You know, you don't come apart from your elf and then become fused to your barbarian. That's not the way it actually works. But we can we can use that that language. But realize that the language is is uh, is not uh, perfect there. So you you stop playing the avatar that you've been playing. All right, and you stop playing that avatar. That's what we're calling separation, and that happens immediately at death. Now, from then on, let's say this is a normal case where then that consciousness system goes to this this uh, reality frame that I've talked about, a transition frame. It kind of wakes up in a different place. So there it was in the body. It was having trouble breathing. You know, it was having pains in its chest, all those kinds of things. And then the next moment, it realizes it's you know like Dorothy it's not you know she's not in Kansas anymore she kind of you kind of wake up and you become aware and it's now a different reality and the first kind of feeling is what's this where am I what's going on and so on and that's where the transition reality then starts with that point and you get uh, prepared for another incarnation but that preparation may take some time you know it's not like you can uh, pop out of one body and, and instantly you know get thrown back into another there's a little adjustment there to find out what's going on you know uh, where am I why am I here you know what's the point what is this place anyway how did I get here there's a lot of stuff that you kind of have to let go of and get through and understand and then if you've been around a, a, a while you want to actually plan your next incarnation. You don't want to just have some kind of a random uh, jump back in. You you want to plan it to be optimal for you and what you have to learn. So there's a bit of a process that needs to go through. Um, and then you incarnate. And once you find a good uh, a good learning opportunity, then you agree to take that opportunity, and then you 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 begin the reincarnation process. So that's kind of the way it works. Now, what about the contacting uh, people after they die? Well, you can't make a hard and fast rule about it. For the most part, you're contacting the database, as, as Oliver said in his question. You're contacting um, the information database. And this is a probable database. You know, It's not just data like, like in a book. It's data, but it's all the, you know, it's not just a hard facts, what we call hard facts, would be the facts of, of, the, uh, of the senses, but it's also all the soft data, all the feelings, the emotions, the, you know, the needs, the wants, the desires, the fears, all of that is there too. So it's, it's the hard data and the soft data, everything you've thought, all the feelings you've had, all the knowledge you've had, all of that stuff. So it is essentially that, that person can be represented by this probabilistic database. You can have conversations with that perp, with that person, and you will be getting replies that are most probable replies, you know, from the database. Or you could, if you were aware that this is how it's working, say, "Well, I don't want the most probable reply. I want the third most probable reply." Then you could have conversations, and you'd be getting the third most probable reply, which would make this person seem just a little different, you know, a little odd than uh, they were when you knew them because now they're saying things that aren't the most likely thing they'd say but the third most likely thing they would say. But the default is you get what's most likely, uh, the most um, likely representation, the best representation of that person when they were here. So what's the difference between when that person was here and this database? 
There is no difference except the person no longer has a free will. They're no longer in that body making choices and learning. Okay, That's the only difference. Everything else is just as it was before. Before they were represented as information and data, um, you know, with probability and with free will. They could make choices. Well, this person, Uncle Fred that died, you know, he's a he's now you're talking to the database, and the database is Uncle Fred, just as Uncle Fred was, but it's not making choices and it's not learning through free will, you know, through those free will choices. But other than that, it is Uncle Fred in every way. So, you know, a lot of people kind of get hung up on that. Oh, I want to talk to the real person, not just the database. Well, the just the database is the real person, minus the fact that it is no longer making choices to, you know, improve its, its uh, quality of consciousness. It's just... Uncle Fred the way Uncle Fred was. Not Uncle Fred the way Uncle Fred would be if he were making new choices and changing himself. You see, you're really talking to what Uncle Fred was. So it's it's not just, oh, it's just the database. It's really the wrong attitude. It is Uncle Fred, but it's no longer learning and growing its consciousness through this conversation you're having with them. You see? So that's the only difference. Now, sometimes an entity that is making the transition or has even made the transition or is in transition can come back and interact with a person here if they want to, if there's an attachment. But this is unusual. Now we're in the probably the, you know, the five sigma, you know, probability. You know, this is a few percent or less that an entity has such a strong connection or there's such a strong need for that actual entity to come and interact because they're not really that entity anymore. That was, a, that was a, uh, an avatar. Okay? That's not them. That was their old avatar. That's that old elf you used to, you know, you used to play until it lost all its hit points in a, in a big catastrophe someplace, and you don't play that elf anymore. So you don't really relate to it that much. After you've gone on, it's just an old avatar. Sometimes there's a connection that it might actually be that entity, particularly if they haven't reincarnated, as, as Oliver points out. They might still interact if there was a reason enough to. Okay, what sort of reasons are maybe reason enough to? Um, could be that the the person that is wants to talk with them is in a really bad emotional state and hasn't yet been able to deal with the death, and you want an interactive person who can make choices, uh, you know, can make good choices interacting. So maybe you would go back to help that person with that with their acceptance of your death, and that may be a reason. But in general, even the database can be pretty good at that because who's playing the database? It's not just a machine, really. If there's something important here to the person who's talking, if it's not just somebody, uh, you know, has gone to a medium because it's cool and wants to get some data, well, that's going to be more mechanistic. But if there's somebody there who's really having a problem, who hasn't been able to, to go on, you see, now that's an issue that needs to be resolved for the larger consciousness system because that person's probably not growing, not going on, not... Uh, you know, increasing their quality, not making uh, good decisions. So at that point, the larger consciousness system is probably going to play that character, make those kinds of uh, those kinds of interactions that will help that person move on. So it's not always just uh, I'm just getting data out of the database. You may be getting the larger consciousness system playing that character in order to help the person that that characters now talking to through the medium or, or under the, you know, by themselves or whatever. So that happens too. Um, a character can be uh, a little more than just out of the database. It can have uh, free will interacting through the larger conscious system. And you'll say, well, 
acting like, uh, you know, is using that like a puppet. You know, well, look, that's who, that's who we all are. We, are. we all are just pieces of this larger consciousness system, right? So when the larger consciousness system picks that up and, and uh, works with that particular data, then, you know, that's not the larger consciousness system tricking us by playing a puppet with, you know, the old whatever. You know, that's not a very profitable way to look at it. That's just what it always was, was the larger consciousness system um, interacting through various subsets of itself. Well, there you have it. But that doesn't mean that this that the subset that was Fred can't have already gone on or be in the process of going on elsewhere. So those are the things that can happen. It can be that Fred does come and talk to, to Aunt Susie because Aunt Susie's having a hard time. It could be the larger conscious system is talking to Aunt Susie because Susie's having a hard time. That depends on where Fred, what, what uh, you know, that consciousness that played Fred is doing. That may be completely preoccupied with something else. Then the larger consciousness system would be playing Fred. Um, it could be that Aunt Susie's just talking to the database because she just needs the comfort of knowing that Fred's okay and everything's fine and you know that Fred's really Fred and life, you know, life doesn't end here. It goes on and that kind of comforting thing is all Aunt Susie needs. And all Aunt Susie needs to do is interact with the database. So part of it is based on Aunt Susie's needs because Aunt Susie's a character in this in this uh, game of conscious evolution. And if she's stuck because she can't go on because Fred died, then she needs help to break out of being stuck, and the system will try to help her, you see. Um, if it's just somebody who's on a lark and thinks it would be fun to go to a medium and, you know, contact Uncle Fred just, uh, you know, just to see whether that medium knows what they're doing, to see, you know, what Uncle Fred might say, well, Uncle Fred might say anything. You know, that's not particularly a serious issue, and it wouldn't necessarily be dealt with very seriously. You know, that, uh, you know, that could, that could uh, work any, any sort of way. It could be very serious. could be mostly comedy. You know, it could be a uh, uh, good sense of humor. could be anything. But it probably doesn't turn out to be much in the bigger picture because there really isn't much of a need for, for that to work. So there isn't any, you know, there isn't like the free will awareness unit stays in that identity for a certain number of hours or days afterwards until it does something else. It's not like that. The free will awareness unit lets go of the old avatar as soon as the old avatar no longer provides them a vehicle for making choices and growing up. So right upon death, the free will awareness unit is not attached, not associated with, again, attached in the right word, not associated with that avatar. It's associated with doing other things. It's in transition or it's in another, it's in another experience packet. Could it, could that particular consciousness come back to and interact with Aunt Susie just because Aunt Susie needs that? Sure, that could be arranged. That's not a problem. Or could the larger conscious system play that role? Sure, that's not a problem. So any, all of the above are possible, depending on the circumstances and how important it is to the overall system, you know, to have that happen. So sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's another. Most of the times it's just the database. That's kind of standard, fat part of the earth. Doesn't mean it has to always be that way, but that's it most of the time. Answer your question, Oliver? Did that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Tom. A question came up um, in light of these previous answers you've been giving. Um, who are we in the out-of-body state, and is it the same as our state of being after death? Well, kind of yes and no. It's, it's somewhat the same, but not exactly, because when we're in the out-of-body state, we are not completely, you know, we haven't completely let go of this avatar. We're still, we're still connected to that avatar, and we still tend to interpret things based on what that avatar knows. So when you're in the out-of-body state and you get data, the way you interpret that data 
is based on what you know as that, you know, what your avatar knows. What's the history? What's the, um, what should we call it? The, um, your experience base. All the experience that avatar has had, that's how you interpret it. You're still limited to that avatar's interpretation of the data. You see? So you go out of body and, and something uh, scares you and you interpret that as a monster with, you know, with three heads and horns and big teeth and you run away. Well, the three horn, the three heads and horns and big teeth were your own interpretation because you were frightened and you've seen pictures of demons that sort of look like that. So that's the picture you give to it. That has to do with what's in your avatars, uh, it, with the free will awareness unit that is connected to your avatar. So it's your free will awareness unit in your avatar that is then going out of body, but still reinterpret, you know, still interpreting that information through that free will awareness unit that is basically uh, limited to the experience base of that avatar. So you're not exactly the same. Once you leave that body because of death, then you no longer, you know, you no longer have this database that limits you to um, how you can interpret data. You get a bigger picture after that. So you do get somewhat of a bigger picture. Or let's say, I shouldn't say necessarily you get a bigger picture. Some limitations drop away. The limitations of that avatar disappear. So you're not exactly the same, no. It's, uh, I mean, you're still part of the same consciousness. That much is the same. You still have probably the same fundamental fears and other things that you had because that's part of your consciousness. But uh, it's a little different being out of body and being dead. Thank you, Tom. I think that answers that very well. The next question comes from Brian. I have a question on the changing of data streams from the physical matter reality data stream to any other non-physical data stream. Which of the two processes below best describes how this is done for the majority of people? interested in achieving this through their meditative practices. The data change and awareness shift happens abruptly, perhaps could be described as an aha moment due to the obvious realization that one is clearly in a different reality from, from physical matter, or the data, the data stream change and awareness shift happens gradually, subtly, and slowly increases in both clarity and definition with time and practice. Okay, the the uh, answer is uh, is C, all of the above. Um, it depends on the individual and what they're doing and how they're approaching it. In the beginning, when you're very first trying to experience the larger consciousness system, it's probably B, happens slowly with a lot of effort, uh, technique. Uh, you first you learn to meditate, you learn to get the noise out of your mind, and then you learn to let go of your physical senses. Uh, you float in the void as point consciousness and so on. It's all part of a process, and that process may take you know, months or it might take years. For some people, it might take decades. But that's a long, slow, purposeful process. All right, so that's the way we start, and that's the way we go. But now once you have learned... What's you know how it how it works that intent is indeed the um, you know the vehicle for for changing your focus. Then it's just a matter of changing your intent. Then it can be as sudden as a microsecond. You can change your intent, and you are in another reality frame. So then it's it's uh, it even goes beyond the aha moment. You know, the aha moment is when suddenly you find yourself aware of someplace else or aware of more than what you were aware of before. But it it can get to where it's just a shift of focus, which means it's just a, an an intent, and it's just that quick. And you can shift back and forth between reality A and B, you know, five times a second. And, you know, every other, every other time you're in A and next time you're in B. So you kind of parallel process. When I talk about parallel processing in different reality frames, it's not that you are, um, it's not that you are 100% in two reality frames. It's really more of a timeshare where you are, 
using your intent to be in both frames, but you are in one a while, the other a while, and if you can do that fast enough, you seem to be consistent in, in both so that you, you look uh, like you're consistently in both and you're interacting in both kind of simultaneously. But if you look down at the details of it, it's not so much simultaneously as it is sequentially, but in such tiny little bits that it seems that it's simultaneously. At least that's the way I have found it. It's a matter of, of uh, time-sharing, and you can time-share on very small timescales, but it's you have to share what your consciousness is, uh, let's say, 100% of the pie, then you can only, you can be like 50-50 in two frames, or you can be like 90-10, or you know 80-20, or you can mix them up any way you want, or you can be in maybe three frames, but then... Uh, Again, you mix up the percentages, but the sum of all of the amounts of your awareness has to still only equal one. So it's not like you get a one in frame A and a one in frame, you know, you're 100% in A, 100% in B, 100% in C. I've not found that to be the way it works. It works more of a, of a, uh, a timeshare that you do a little bit of that. And it's because you are a consciousness and your consciousness, you know, to be focused clearly you know, it can't be focused, well, I shouldn't say it can't, you know, that's just my experience, you know, other people may be able to, you know, to develop that ability differently, but in my experience, the focus needs to be, uh, um, you know, like singular, like it's more of a one-track focus, so you're kind of one track here, and one track there, and one track here, and one track there, and you can do that pretty quickly, but it's, uh, it's more of a timeshare. I don't know. Did I answer that question? Yes, the person that is uh, the person's not here who asked that question, and I, I think that was a, a very good answer. The next question comes from Adam, who is here, I think. Um, I'm wondering about the various experiments one may conduct to confirm and validate subjective experiences and collect measurable objective results. How does one go about establishing protocol for these experiments and repeatability? Okay, uh, a general answer to that is that it's much easier to do this if you are in a group that's doing this, if you have at least one other person to do it with. Because as you, you have to do things that are evidential. And obviously there's a problem with you, with you picking the target of what it is you're going to see. You see, it's much better if somebody else picks that target and then you tell them what you see and then they look at it and see how closely you got to their target. So there's a, there's a real problem with just doing it by yourself um, for those kinds of experiments where you're actually uh, trying to do something evidential to the physical world and see how close you did. Now... There are some things you can do individually that you don't need a second person. You know, you can um, do healing on people and then try to keep track of, you know, is what you saw what they had? You know, you saw the black spot in their left hand. And was it, in fact, the problem that they hit their hand with a hammer or was the problem actually a headache, you see? So if they hit their hand with a hammer, that would be, okay, I got that one. If you think they hit their hand with the head, you know, that their hand was a problem, but really the head was a problem, then that's one that you missed. You know, I missed that one. So those kinds of things you can do, but you can only do that with people you know so that you can look at them and then go up and say, oh, did you just have a headache, you know, today, or uh, does your hand hurt today? But that's a lot harder than if you have somebody else involved with you and you say, okay, a friend of mine, I'm sure you know people who are ill in your family, you know, and not anybody I know, you know, just people in your own family, friends that I don't share with you and so on. Um, you know, think, you know, find out about some of those people and whether or not they have health problems and then come back and give me something like uh, Mr. X or George or Sally, you know, don't tell me too much information and then I will tell you what I think's wrong with them. So this is just called diagnosing. It's not really healing. But that's pretty evidential because when you diagnose, um, you know, there's plenty enough parts of the body 
that if you're just guessing, you're not going to be more than about maybe uh, you know 10% right because there's at least 10 things you could say. You know, head, right, left, top, bottom, you know, higher, lower. There's ways that you can specify that are just going to be wrong. So you'd have a pretty low guessing uh, ability to, to get that right very often. So that's the thing. But see, that takes a second person to do that. And then you can tell that second person, and then they can tell you whether or not you got the answer right. Um, once you do things that are that are outside of uh, connection with this virtual reality, it's pretty problematical. Um, in other words, once you stay out of body or something like that, then it doesn't really relate to this reality. So there's very little evidential uh, things you can do there other than maybe get information. You might be able to get some information and see if the information is right, but that's basically called remote viewing. And again, it's better if you work with a partner or somebody who can provide the targets for you, you provide the targets for them, or you're part of a group. And there are groups of people who do this sort of thing for each other. So I'd say most of the evidential stuff done better in a group format. It's just easier that way. Keep track of your successes and what you would expect um, what you would expect from, uh, you know, if it were random. And there's some things, if it's a 50-50 chance, you know, is this, is this coin a head or a tail? You know, well, you guess. You should expect 50% correct, you know, from that because it's a 50-50 chance. Uh, the thing we were talking about, diagnosis, maybe no more than 1 in 10, probably less, if you're just guessing that you'd be able to diagnose something right. So it depends on the situation. Think what you should expect if it were random and see what you get and see if it's significantly different from what you expect if it was random. You know, that's the, that's the process. Uh, one very good uh, learning thing I had was somebody showed me a, a photograph. And, one, you know, somebody showed me a photograph. And in this particular photograph, one of the persons had a reputation for being psychic. And the rest did not. And they asked me, could I tell the difference? Well, you could do the same thing with pictures of people and somebody was, uh, somebody had cancer or somebody was, uh, you know, different things. Somebody was, uh, you know, I don't know, schizophrenic maybe or uh, angry or depressed. Could you tell, you know, which one it was? That would be another way you could, you could do that. But again, if somebody else does that, then you have no pre, you don't have any, uh, you know, you don't have any way of knowing. I mean, the answer may be none of the above. Nobody in that picture stands out to me as a psychic. See, that could be the right answer. See, if you always, if you feel there has to be one, then you'll guess which one looks most psychic to me. You know, who has the, who has the deep set, beady little mystical eyes or whatever, and maybe you start guessing, and that's not, you know, that's not uh, good. You, uh, None of the above needs to be a, you know, a possible answer, or all of the above, you know, maybe a possible answer. So work with other people. Anything you can set up that can be verified is a good is a good tool. So remote viewing and healing are two of the most obvious because they're very easy to do. It doesn't take. You know, most people can get some success out of healing and remote viewing very easily and very quickly. Not too hard. As long as you can uh, get your mind quieted to the point that you, you can actually focus you know, an intention. Once you can focus an intention, then you ought to be able to do uh, remote viewing and, and healing. And then get with other people and figure you're going to have to do it for a long time. You gotta, it's not like we're going to do this you know, three or four times and then quit. That, you won't learn much with that. What will happen is you start with it, and at the, in the beginning, you'll probably be much better than you will be, you know, a little while after. Let's say in the beginning, we'll talk about the first 10 experiments you do. You may be more successful than the next 10 experiments you do because in the beginning, you don't have any ego invested in it. It's, I'll oh, just give it a try, see what happens. You see, you're very uh, detached from the result because you don't really expect to get it right. Because you've not done it, seems kind of like a crazy thing. You don't really expect it to work. 
Well, you're probably better at it then until after, oh, my God, it did work. You know, I got these right. And then you have more of a problem because now you feel like you've got a, you know, a point to make. You've gotten it right before. Now you want to get it right again, and you're involved in it. Your ego's in it. Now you don't do as well. And then you do that for a while before you just kind of begin to relax and say, all right, I'll just, you know, I'll just do it. And you get your detachment back, and then you'll get your, you know, it'll start working better once the detachment's back. And then once it gets more consistent, then the next thing you do is say, okay, now what's the difference between the ones that worked and I got the right answers and the things that didn't work? How did that feel different? What you know, what state was I in? What was the, and you'll find there are subtle differences between the times when you're successful and when you're not. And one of the surprising things you'll probably find is those times where you work the hardest at it are the times when you are least successful. And those times when it's almost a casual sort of thing are the times when you're most successful. And again, that's because of the detachment, you know, ego issues. So as you can tell, there's a lot of variables here. And you need to spend enough time working over all these variables that eventually you get to where you can just do it when you want and you're very effective. Now, depending on your personality, you may get there in three weeks or you may get there in 10 years. That just dep depends on how hard it is for you to detach, how easy it is for you to let go of the, the noise and have a, have a uh, kind of a, a pure focused intent. Those things may take some time to develop. And how quickly you are able to, to sort through the times that work from the times that don't work and come up with general practices. Also, in the beginning, you will probably have a long ramp to get ready. Most people do. First, you relax. You know, then you meditate. Then you do this, and then you do that. And, okay, now I think I'm ready. And you go through all of this uh, almost ritual to get ready. Eventually, you drop all that ritual, and it goes more quickly. So, again, more variables to deal with. So because there's so many variables to deal with when you're dealing with people and everybody's different, uh, it's hard to give a timeline on it. But just if you're persistent and you keep working at it, I'd say you probably notice that you're getting good at it in you know six months to a year, and you'll probably, you'll probably be doing much better than than uh, random in six months to a year, but that doesn't really mean you're good at it. You know, you probably won't get good at it until you've relaxed in it and uh, probably spent a couple of years working at it. But you may get results immediately when you first approach it with no attitude at all. Just, oh, I'm just going to try this out and see what happens. And you, you're not, uh, you have no expectation of what the outcome is. See, that's a that's actually a good position to be in, but that's hard to maintain. As soon as we have a little experience and we had some success, now expectations get in get in the way. Because expectation is just a, a part of ego. So I guess that's the that's the answer to that question. I hope that satisfies. Yeah, that's great. <laughs>